Welcome to Long Shots. This is the story of two brothers from the Midwest with nothing to lose, who created a tech empire and all the valuable lessons we learned along the way. Episode 2, The $10,000 Tip September 2005. Verizon Communications had just made a fiber optic internet and cable service available to 9,000 customers in Keller, Texas. The service, called Fios, was aimed to replace copper wires with fiber optic fibers. Fios would disrupt the entire internet and usher in what we now know as Web 2.0. Fiber optic internet was built for speed. At the time, the average download speed to surf the internet was about 25 megabits per second. Fios quadrupled that to over 100 megabits. It not only allowed faster internet, it allowed more people to use a single internet connection without interruption. After a successful test in Texas, Fios quickly spread to six more states, Florida, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Virginia, and California. At a small house on Rose Avenue in Venice, California, my friend Patrick McManus snapped a Verizon doorknob flyer off the front door. Venice had been chosen as a test market for this new fiber optic internet. Verizon had an office near the corner of Rose Avenue and Main Street in Venice, and we sort of assumed this was a vanity play so that all our neighbors who worked at Verizon could all get lightning-fast internet in their own homes. For only $19.99 a month, we could ditch Time Warner and join the revolution. My brother and my cousins, Rick and Bob, were in a heated game of multiplayer Halo. When all four of us were playing online, we often experienced more buffering issues than usual. I'd be lining up a headshot on some squatter, and the screen would freeze and the game would begin buffering. And the next thing I knew, I'd be dead on the ground getting teabagged, probably by some maladjusted 16-year-old from Keller, Texas. I vividly remember the day when Patty stepped in front of the TV holding that stupid doorknob flyer with a big knowing grin on his face. Boys, we are going to kick everybody's ass in Halo. Patty would know, I guess. He was our resident techie. He was also a manager at a T-Mobile store in Long Beach, so he was managerial too. Anyway, we signed up and Verizon showed up the very next morning to install Fios. Listeners, we made Halo into our own personal online massacre. Our shiny new high-speed internet allowed us to actively reload faster than the others, and while I was an SRS 99C sniper rifle fan, Rick had perfected the art of throwing plasma grenades at players' crotches. But at some point, it got boring. I mean, there were only so many people you could teabag online. And Caesar wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. It didn't take us too long to realize that this is what we called a competitive advantage. We were all in our mid-twenties, none of us were to the manner born, but having this new secret weapon that nobody else in the world had made us feel like royalty. We were going to bend this fiber optic internet to our will and use it to make a boatload of money. We just didn't know how. During that time, small online blogs were gaining popularity. Irreverent men's lifestyle websites like Egotastic and What Would Tyler Durden Do emerged. 
and concurrently the first gossip blogs began dotting the tech landscape. Pink is the New Blog and Perez Hilton, who had gotten famous for buying paparazzi photos and writing clever and sometimes lewd captions over them. These were exciting times. The internet was the wild, wild west. It was a novelty, not the utility we know it as today. Nobody went online to do their banking in 2006. You went online to watch Perez Hilton doodle penises on celebrities. And we wanted in that game. My brother Leo had gotten a job as something called an ad trafficker at Crew Creative. Crew Creative was an L.A. advertising agency known for creating the movie posters for some of the biggest Hollywood blockbusters, from Harry Potter to The Hangover. Crew knew the future was in digital advertising. With online viewership soaring, the money followed, and along came display advertising above the content called banner ads. Suddenly, AT&T was advertising on college humor. This allowed bloggers who were maintaining their websites more or less as hobbies to get paid. My brother's company had started representing some of these bloggers and he had visibility into how much money they were actually making. This time it was Leo's turn to storm through the door of Rose Avenue and stand in front of our game of Halo to make his proclamation. He told us that Perez Hilton made $250,000 last month. Holy shit. You mean last year? No, last month. (gasps) We dropped our joysticks and booked it to the Barnes & Nobles on the 3rd Street Promenade and bought Blogging for Dummies. Within just a couple of weeks, we'd spun up our own celebrity gossip blog called D-Rober. It had this catchy gimmick. We had programmed what we called a rollover effect. For example, you could mouse over a perfectly lovely photo of Britney Spears, and it would instantly morph into a bald Britney holding a bush light, ripping a Newport menthol. We called it D-Robing Celebrities, hence the name D-Rober. D-Rober slowly gained popularity. After a few months, we had about 100,000 daily active users. It wasn't bad. And we'd caught the attention of some of our peers in the space, including Egotastic and College Humor. The only way to get traffic in those days was to cross-pollinate your audiences by way of something called link swapping. Every day, College Humor would send us a list of articles they wanted us to promote on DeRober, and we'd send them links to our articles. It was one big game of reciprocity. It was pretty basic, but it worked. But we wanted a million daily active users. And at the rate we were going, that was going to take years. Leo and I began to theorize about an emerging idea called going viral. Back then, the early internet had very few examples of this going viral thing. There was one, though, that you could definitely point your finger to. On the evening of December 12, 2005, the entertainment landscape changed forever. A digital short debuted on Saturday Night Live. It's about two guys, Andy Samberg and Chris Parnell, rapping about their wholesome Sunday plans. The short was written by The Lonely Island. It was called Lazy Sunday. Lazy Sunday, wake up in the late afternoon. Call Parnell just to see how he's doing. Hello, what up, Parnell? Yo, Samberg, what's cracking? 
Before Lazy Sunday, you either watched SNL on Saturday night or you missed it. But one of the Lonely Island members, Akiva Schaefer, had a younger brother, Micah. He was that group's resident techie. Micah was helping the Lonely Island post their early videos online on a website that he made. But once he posted that Lazy Sunday video, his undersized website crashed from all the traffic and he needed a more powerful website to put the Lazy Sunday clip on than his homegrown site. So he uploaded the clip to YouTube. Within a week, it had over 5 million views. It had gone viral. My brother and I figured if we could go viral, it would get millions of people to go to DRober and introduce millions of users to our website over a course of days, not years. Leo and I wanted to go viral, but we weren't rappers or musicians. However, we were pranksters. So Leo and I went to our office. It was the bar at James Beach in Venice Boulevard and we swiped a few bar napkins and borrowed a pen from the waiter. All of our executive decisions back in those days were made on bar napkins. Also, back in the day, everybody still trusted the news. After a couple Coronas, we thought, what if we could manufacture a news story that was so riveting and so well thought out that everybody thought it was true? It would be like news, but fake. It would be fake news. Back then, we just called it an online hoax. But who would be our target? I'm ashamed to admit that one of our fleeting ideas was to falsely report that Michael Jackson had died. I'm really glad we didn't do that. Leo said the hoax had to be victimless, that there would be no negative consequences for our chosen target. About then, we looked up at the TV behind the bar at James Beach and we saw Donald Trump was in Los Angeles promoting the first season of his reality show, Celebrity Apprentice. You're fired. This Trump guy was in our backyard, literally. In the sidebar of DeRober was a scroll that reported celebrity tipping stories. We called it tippers or stiffers. One of our roommates at the time, Liam McCann, was a waiter at an upscale Santa Monica eatery called the Buffalo Club. It was a scene lunch spot for the old Hollywood guard. For us, the Buffalo Club had a unique quality that separated it from other Santa Monica restaurants. It was always closed on Tuesdays. What if we manufactured a story that Donald Trump had dinner at the Buffalo Club on a Monday night and left a $10,000 tip? We could launch the yarn on a Tuesday morning and if any reporter called the restaurant, no one would be there to take the call to refute it. Here's how it worked. Liam printed a duplicate receipt from a customer who had ordered spaghetti and meatballs with an iced tea and he brought it home. We scanned the receipt and uploaded it to Photoshop. Leo found a photo of Donald Trump's autograph online and digitally lifted his signature onto the receipt. Next, we hand wrote $10,000 in the tip line below the $82.27 check. Liam didn't want his bosses to know that he'd given us the receipt, so we used the eraser function in Photoshop to white out his name. All that was left to do was make up a new name for the fake waiter who got the lucky tip. We named him Billy D, after Billy D. Williams. It was our subtle nod to the return of the Jedi. 
I launched the farce the following morning at 6 a.m. To give the story the widest reach and the best possible chance to succeed, we used our link partners to seed the story. When Egotastic, College Humor, and Funny or Die sent us their fresh batches of links, we sent them back a link to the astonishingly big Trump tip story. And then I went to sleep. We'd spent all night prepping the story, and I was exhausted. When I woke up around 11 a.m., I walked into the living room to find all of my roommates huddled around the TV. They were still in their boxer shorts, passing around a bottle of Jack Daniels and laughing their asses off. My brother saw me and said, John, you gotta get in here. You are gonna wanna see this. To my astonishment, there was an Access Hollywood reporter standing outside the Buffalo Club. He was holding a printed receipt of the $10,000 tip up to the camera in one hand and indicating back to the restaurant in the other. Even in standard definition, you could see Trump's flamboyant signature like it was HD. We were hoping for print media exposure. We never expected broadcast media to roll a truck to the Buffalo Club. An hour later, an E! News team would be reporting live outside the Buffalo Club. In the background of the newscast, we could see reporters physically banging on the door of the Buffalo Club to try to get an interview with the fictional Billy D. But the whole joint was closed, allowing precious time for the hoax to get broader circulation. Back at 1016 Rose Avenue, we were still in our boxer shorts, emptying the last contents of the Jack Daniels bottle into our water glasses, and we were gobsmacked we set out to hoodwink the internet. And instead, we'd single-handedly manipulated the whole damn system. Winston Churchill once said a lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth can put its pants on. Turns out he was right. In the end, our master plan didn't turn out exactly as we hoped. Millions of people did flow into DeRober over the next few days to passively look at the famous Trump tip. But all the traffic evaporated after a week. DeRober just wasn't sticky enough. Despite all the fun we had, the first business my brother and I ever created had failed. It worked out well for the others, though. Trump made a public statement about his tip, He denied it and blamed that stupid restaurant for using his name to drum up publicity. Fake news. If the owner of the Buffalo Club had been clever enough to conjure all this up, Trump would have been right. According to our roommate Liam, after the hoax, the Buffalo Club experienced a renaissance of sorts. There was a line outside the door for weeks after, and ironically, most people just wanted to know which table it was that Trump sat in before leaving the big tip. The hoax didn't turn out badly for Trump either. Celebrity Apprentice revived the Tired Apprentice brand and it debuted the second largest rating in the show's history. There's no information in success. There's heaps of information in failure. The Trump tip hoax taught us that people wanted more content. At DeRober, we could post maybe four or five times a day. Our users wanted 40 posts a day. Most importantly, you can't be successful in any venture if you don't care about the product you're creating. 
We couldn't have cared less about celebrity gossip. Plus, we wanted to create an online community, and you can't do that if the product you're shilling is gossip. My brother and I were determined to take the lessons we learned from DeRober and apply them to a new website, something much more robust and engaging. We had an idea to create a one-stop shop for the best the internet had to offer every day. No politics or polarization, free from hate and vitriol. We wanted to create a website we were passionate about, an online destination that existed just to make people laugh. Prior to moving to Venice Beach, my brother had lived in Chicago. So we took the CHI from Chicago and the VE from Venice Beach and we started a new website. We called it The Chive. A few short days after buying the Chive domain, we received the hosting bill for DeRober. You know, you have to pay hosting fees for all the traffic that had inundated the website during the hoax. The bill was $27,000. At the time, I had $17,000 in student loans, and I thought that was insurmountable. Now we weren't just broke, we were heavily in debt. We needed something positive to break our way, and soon. I was days away from being cast in the hit show True Blood, and we wouldn't know it at the time, but somewhere in the basement of a bookstore in Northumbria, England, a shop owner was about to discover a poster from World War II that had never been released to the public, and that poster was going to change our lives forever. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating. Go to thechive.com forward slash long shots to subscribe to our newsletter and see photos of all the events I talked about in the podcast today. Also, I do personally try to read all the emails we received, so if you'd like to reach out to the show, email me at longshotsatthechive.com. Long Shots is hosted, executive produced, and written by me, John Rezig, for Chive Media Group. Audio editing and sound design by Stephen Wilson. Join us next Thursday for episode three of Long Shots.